The pill, profumo, pornography, love, liberation and libido. Larkin, Lady Chatterley, Lolita. No era in recent history has been both more celebrated and more vilified than the 1960s. For some, it was a time when music, fashion and drugs enabled young people to express their individuality and freedom, their hopes and dreams of a different, better world. For others, the decade marked the advent of the permissive society, the undermining of authority, family values and common decency. And at the heart of the controversy was and is sex. Sexual revolution in the 60s wasn't one single thing. For gay men, it represented greater tolerance to homosexuality. And the pill available to married women from 1961 and unmarried women from 67 detached sex from procreation, making it possible for women to have it without the fear of unwanted pregnancy and for the simple sake of pleasure. But it also made some men exploit this fact, saying, you've got the pill now, so what's to stop you jagging me? But was that vision of orgiastic hedonism, ever-changing partners, polymorphous perversity, really true? Or was it just for a tiny minority of those who existed at the heart of the decade's social blur? The vast majority of the population could only gawp at such guilt-free transactions and seemed to carry on living in a no-sex-please-we're-British world with a moral code that stretched back to the Victorian age. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Blow out the candles and kick off your sandals, as Stephen Duffy sang. Come and join us. Enjoy these tales from the underground, oral testimonies from the other side. There's lots more of it at bureauoflostculture.com and you can sign up for our newsletter and be in touch. Write us a letter. So good to hear from people. Keep them coming. Now, my guest today wrote a book, Growing Up, Sex in the 60s. It takes an unflinching look at the dark underbelly of the sexual revolution and shows that the 60s was not really a sexual paradise. It collects a dozen little-known stories that reveal how the sexual revolution transformed people's lives with an honest, often disturbing portrait of a constant battle between two forces, the urge to free the body from guilt and the desire to control, cannibalize and exploit the liberation for profit or pleasure. Peter Doggett is a journalist and cultural critic and writer. His major books include works on Lou Reed, Dave Bowie, Dave Bowie, David Bowie, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and The Beatles. He also wrote There's a Riot Going On, The Definitive History of Rock and Radical Politics, which I'm quite keen to read. And Electric Shock, The Complete History of Popular Music. And also F star star K, An Irreverent History of the F Word. That's a bit appropriate for today. And here he is. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Peter. Hi, Stephen. Good to meet you. Most famous for being a music journalist and your bibliography, whatever they call it these days, is quite something. You spent much of your time writing about music and musical culture and stuff. But what we're going to talk about today is sex. <laughs> well, growing up, sex in the 60s. It's a very thought-provoking book. We've just been talking before we started here about its connections with music and, and counterculture. And before we dive deep into that, tell us how you, a music journalist and writer, came to write a book about sex in the 60s and i've always been fascinated 
not just by music, obviously, but by the cultural connections. I love making connections between stuff, finding influences, um, and sort of drawing out the historical resonances. And so I've written several books which have been quite sort of panoramic in terms of their content and have led me to all sorts of unusual places in the British Library. And as you read stuff, you might be looking for, I don't know, David Bowie or the Beatles or whatever, but you're going to also notice on the same page, oh, there's a huge fuss about, I don't know, underage sex or the legalization of homosexuality or whatever. And I realized that the more research I did into the music of the 60s, that there was a much bigger culture behind that, which I didn't really think anybody had written about, which is the sexual culture. Um, and that might sound, might sound strange because obviously there have been endless books about the counterculture, about um, the sort of sexual landmarks of the 60s, Lady Chatterley's Lover, um, the legalization of abortion, partially, the legalization of homosexuality, partially. The pill. The pill, exactly. Well, those are the four sort of mm -hmm. major things. Oh, the profumo. Mm -hmm. And those are the things which, if anybody does a documentary, they come flashing up. Um, but the more I looked, the more I read, without having any preconceptions from the start about what I was going to find, I just realized there was a deeper story here. Mm -hmm. And so I, I dived in um, to high culture and low culture and waited to, to find out, you know, what the real stories were underneath. I'm going to mention it now because you mentioned some of your other more panoramic books and I hope that you're going to come back and talk about There's a riot going on, revolutionary rock stars and the rise of 60s counterculture, which again, I'm imagining ties in, um, you know, the story of music. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, and in the 70s, I was passionate about music but i also started to, to pick up a very um a very left-wing political sensibility i studied marxism and literature at university so it looked at a weird combination so that background was always there um and in a strange way a very naive way as well i think i've always felt betrayed by the fact that the revolution we were being promised by I don't know, Country Joe and the Fish and the Jefferson Airplane and John Lennon and so on. But it never happened. I grew right. up. I right. got into music um, when I was 13, really, in a big way, 1970. And the whole of um, rock culture is infused with revolutionary rhetoric. And I was all up for it at 13 because I came from a boring lower middle class background. And I wanted excitement <laughs> and, you know, the new and mm. freedom and so on. Whatever happened um, to the revolution. Yeah, right? well, exactly, which is, you know, you could fill several hours with mm. that. Well, it's, it's a subject that's come up um, many times on this show. Find out, did young people really feel like that? If they did, did they really think they could change the world? And then, and then what happened? What happened to the counterculture? In terms of your thesis, something else which I found very intriguing this connection that you make between not just pop culture, but pop music and sex. It's almost as though you were saying that pop music was a device for sexually exciting teenagers in some ways. Right. Right? I mean, possibly <laughs> unconsciously, but that was sort of what was going on. I'm not saying that pop was a sort of mm. evil invention designed no, to no. get young men and women into bed. In but, fact, you could sort of say from the, an industry point of view, the opposite. They would, didn't really want to encourage that from the establishment point of view. But yeah. you, I think you were sort of saying that there's, that's, that's something in the power, the power of dirty rock and roll that makes you want to dance, that makes you want to move with somebody else. There is yeah. something primal, libidinous and sort of sexual about it, right? Well, you've said the two important words, which are dance and move, right. because, um, and it goes way back beyond rock and roll. It goes back through... 
jazz, which is something I know you know plenty about. Back before that, to the dance bands, mm. and it's basically the, influ- uh, the infusion of African American culture right. into the white, you know, mainstream, um, which is seen as an incredible cultural threat. Obviously, in the 1950s, we know about that. Obviously, much more recently, you know, you can look at drill music or, you know, um, hip hop in general. Um, but going right the way back to ragtime, there is an establishment, for want of a better word horror at the idea of young people moving in syncopated ways because it makes young women loosen their corsets it might lead them into you know difficult embarrassing situations and that is a it's a it's like a circular theme that repeats all the way through the history of popular music in the west anyway all the way through from the 1890s to today and um, um i wrote a book called electric shock in 2015 which was like a sort of a cultural history of popular music from the 1890s up to the present day. And that was the story I, I discovered. Again, there are always archbishops and politicians and, for, for, for want of a better word, do-gooders who are going to be outraged, ready to be outraged by whatever the latest popular music thing is. And underneath mm. that is always sex. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the actual phrase rock and roll itself, Yeah, what does it mean? I mean, it means movement, but one of the things it means from American culture is um, sex, moving up and down on top of each other or against each other or whatever. Another important thing about your book, I think, is that you know it takes an unflinching look at the dark underbelly of the sexual revolution. And we're going to dive into sort of late fifties and sixties and that you know that phrase, the sexual revolution, the permissive age, and all that. So it's not it doesn't actually you don't set out to to sort of shine technical lights on it and how wonderful and free it was no, at I mean, all. I, I, it was not a sexual paradise, no, particularly I, for, for certain groups and particularly for women in a Particularly way, for right? women. Obviously, we know about mm. the, the, the trauma faced by, by gay people, by mm. transgender people, before you know, society slowly, painfully changed. Um, but with particular reference to the 60s, the, the cliche is that everybody takes their clothes off and waves their knickers in the air and has sex. Now, if that happened at all in British history, it was actually in the 70s. That was when... Um, I think this is your phrase, is that people started to live the 60s around about 1975. Yeah, exactly. And maybe I'm just talking about myself here. I don't know. <laughs> but the so-called sexual liberation, the idea that everybody was having was at an orgy in the 60s, well, they were if they were in the pop scene mm-hmm. or they lived in Kensington and Chelsea and were under the age of 30. They were having orgies. Everywhere else, society just carried on exactly the same. Pretty much as it had been in the forties and fifties, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. which is what I remember as a kid. Yeah, right. I mean, it is important to remember that the other decade, like the late nineteenth century, and even in the Edwardian age, you know, where it was more permissive for various reasons, but it tended to be within certain class groups, didn't it? When you think about the Oscar Wilde situation, for instance, is these upper class, in this case, men having sex with. We have working class men, cross class divides, and it was kind of under the radar, wasn't it? And then it popped out a little bit now and again, but it pretty much quickly crushed until in the late 50s and 60s, it sort of gets its head above the parapet and sort of stays there. I think so, yes. I mean, once society's been through world wars for a mm. start, that alters mm. people's um, mindset. One of the reasons that I think the influence of the Marquis de Sade in the 60s, the connection between sex and violence, well, that's been there since the year dot, but it comes centrally into the into the culture. 
Um, and you can't help thinking that there's a sort of hangover mm. from the war because we've got two generations of the particularly young men who've been sent off into battle. Been brutalized. Who've seen and been brutalized, whether or not they were actually doing the killing, they've experienced the most, I mean, things that the likes of you and I cannot imagine going through. And then they've been expected to come back and live as before, quietly and sedately. Well, there's something has changed in their psyches. Also, after the Second World War, you get this so-called invention of the teenager, don't you? Which is like a new generation of yeah. young people who don't actually share the values of the previous generation. The previous generation have been scarred very much by conflict and, and deprivation, you know, in their 30s. You've got these kids coming up. They've got more money, right? There's more opportunities, you know, for travel and leisure and music and all this sort of stuff. Education Education, well, yeah, right? Yeah. So... There's a kind of rejection of older values, and that sort of feeds into it, doesn't it? It's interesting you say that about Dessart, and of course you've got people like Alistair Crowley, who was rediscovered in the 60s, mm. wasn't it? You know, and this sort of libidinous beast, you know, what's he up to with your daughters? Yeah. Uh, this sort of fascination with that. And then I suppose chemical invention, which is the pill. Now, as you talk about it, it is a kind of liberation, but is it for women or for men? I've heard from people who we're taking the pill in the 60s. Um, and this is purely anecdotal. It's not, you know, there's no science involved in this. I've heard both. I've heard the the mm -hmm. story that, oh my God, at last, you know, we could have sex mm -hmm. and not worry. And I've also heard more prevalently, I think, oh, it was great for men because men just assumed, you know, one of the entire onus used to be, was the man going to turn up mm. with a sheath or whatever mm. it was called? And then suddenly, oh, well, the woman is expected to be on the pill. And if she wasn't, that was her lookout. And it, it gave young men, I think, a sense of freedom of thinking that if women are on the pill, they must be up for it. You know, regardless whether they fancy me or not, that's irrelevant. Well, that's come up here before too. And of course, it's important to remember, pill was invented, but it was only available to married couples yeah, for, yeah. for a few years, right? Yeah. It wasn't until sort of mid, further on in the 60s where a single woman could go in and actually get the pill. Yeah. Jill Drower, you know, was talking about this subject when she was here. And in this atmosphere, certainly in London anyway, and I imagine in other parts of the country too, as a, a young woman, you're expected to be ready to have sex at any moment. Because you're on the pill, it was going to be risk-free, <laughs> and if you if you weren't prepared to do that, you, the word which was often used was frigid. Yeah, absolutely. So you, yeah. <laughs> no matter what the guy yeah. was like, you get these intellectual hippies who would sort of uh, use some Freudian analysis on you. You must be really screwed up. Yeah. Hung up, of course, yeah. was the actual. But it did change things for sure, right? And then, of course, there's the Profumo affair, which I'm sure most listeners know about. But it just maybe just say something about that, Peter, because it it was a sort of signal moment, wasn't it? It's the first time, just about. Well, not quite the first time, but almost the first time that sex the idea of sexual pleasure enters mm. the sort of popular discourse um, and so so for example you get Mary Whitehouse who was a school teacher in the early 60s um, one of the reasons that she starts her national viewers and whatever it's called national viewers and something or other listeners campaign um, to, to sort of safeguard children's morals across the country is because as a school teacher she has had young kids coming into her and saying, oh, well, we thought we ought to because we'd heard on the TV last night that this is what men and women do. Here we have a, an extraordinarily staid government minister, John Profumo, who was mixed up in various ways with various core girls, as they were called at the time, prostitutes. And that then sort of infests, if you like, the sort of popular culture of the age. And it affects 
young people who are too young to, to know anything about what any of it means, but it sort of enters their psyche. And and so, yeah, that was one of the reasons that Mary Whitehouse actually <laughs> tried, tried to sort of ban sexuality from the airwaves and the, and the newspapers because she was frightened for the the morals of, of young children. Now, whether she was right or wrong is another big question. But. The political scandal was really about the fact that there was lies told yeah, in Parliament. That's right, which is, what a joke. I mean, <laughs> these days, <laughs> these days is, is there yeah, a Prime Minister's yeah. questions where the, where the Prime Minister in the last 10 years hasn't stood up and lied his, mm. his or her head off? The other um, thing written about that time, much repeated, but it is the Philip Larkin um, poem, and, you know, sexual intercourse began, which was rather late for me, between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP. Well, the Chatterley ban he's talking about there is, of course, is the fact that uh, D.S. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley, it went to court, didn't it, that it was this obscene publication. It seems ludicrous now, but that was another sort of signal yeah. moment, wasn't it? And I can remember my shock going to my uncle's house when I was... I was only about seven or eight and seeing a copy of Lady Chatterley on my shelf. And even at that age, I mean, I didn't grow up in a house with books in. How would I know? But mm. at that age, I knew that there was something dangerous and naughty about uh, mm. Lady Chatterley's lover. So it became a, a sort of emblem of when it was finally published by Penguin in 1960. Sli- slightly disappointing in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the age of seven or eight, it probably would have been if I'd read it, yeah. but uh, Maybe a great book or not, I don't know, but it's not actually that graphic, is it really? It's just that it, for some reason they sort of settled on it as being this work of obscenity which was going to deprave young people. Yeah, yeah. and it names private parts. Right. Yeah, right. which right. is which right. is terrifying. Yeah. Looking back across a long 60s from the sort of late 50s through to the early 70s of mainstream culture, looking at national newspapers, women's magazines, teenage magazines, uh, many TV programmes and so on, and films, the way in which sex is talked about or hinted at in the late 50s, early 60s, is so different from what it was like at a time I can remember very clearly, but late 60s where suddenly you're getting late night plays on BBC where everybody takes their clothes off, whereas five years before that they wouldn't even have discussed being married and having sex. And do you yeah. think that was the, at least partly then, the influence of the counterculture? Because, you know, you've got things happening, haven't you? You've got, like, radical plays happening yeah. where people sort of strip off. You've got, like, beings and happenings, and it, it is filtering through to the wider culture, isn't it? And it's playwrights true. are taking more risks. Yep. And, you know, the theatres are more open to risks. And then suddenly you sort of see foreign films as ever. The French seem to be way ahead of us on this stuff, mm-hmm. didn't they? So this all starts to feed in, doesn't it, into the wider culture, right? As you say, the culture widens to take in stuff from other countries as mm-hmm. well. Um, in a way that perhaps before the early 60s it hadn't done. The idea that there were three simultaneous sexual revolutions going on in the 1960s, one of which is the one that's in all the documentaries, which is young people taking their clothes off and face painting and dancing naked at Woodstock or whatever. I suppose that is the counterculture, and that and that incorporates, I don't know, Yoko Ono's film of bottoms. It incorporates um, Kenneth Tynan doing Oh Calcutta through to much more sort of avant-garde and experimental stuff. The second one is the one that we've already talked about a bit, which is the legal changes. Um, so social changes, legalisation of various things that you weren't allowed to do or weren't allowed to have. Particularly with homosexual yeah, men, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, and then the third one, which is the one that sort of took me took me by surprise and then became so obvious to me afterwards, was the, the revolution which allowed an older generation of entrepreneurs, of filmmakers, of writers, of photographers, also just of ordinary people as well, to exploit 
young women particularly, also young men, but particularly young women, for, for sexual purposes. So you've got the perversion of the sexual revolution. You've got extreme liberalism to the point that by 1960, in the national newspapers or in, in national magazines, it becomes perfectly acceptable for people to be talking about the seductive um, power of you know 10, 11, 12-year-old girls in a way which, if I mean, you wouldn't dare to mention that in the press today. You'd be locked up for even you know suggesting the idea, and it's blatant. It's on. It's in a sort of almost every day's newspaper. Mm. There's another story about oh, a 12-year-old temptress who uh, has been leading men astray in the West End of London and so on. Never the men's fault to her. Who were abusing and I, her I guess the publication her. of Lolita by Nabokov. Well, that's the yeah, that's the central thing. The first two chapters of my twelve uh, chapter book are based on Lolita. The first one on the book, the background to the book, and the second one on the film, which came uh, I think four year, five years after the book was published. Here, it's one of the most famous, infamous literary novels of all time. I say in I think my introduction how ironic it is that. In a way, it's the the emblematic book of the 60s because it's about sexual liberation for somebody. It's about young people, younger people than ever before, having sex. And but also it, that American 60s dream of getting on the road. Yeah. You know, travelling across America in a car without any particular yeah. destination. Then, and yeah. he's escaping the law, a bit like right. Easy Rider. You know, you've got mm. that as well. Um, but the bizarre thing is it's written by a man who was born in 1899. <laughs> so, you know, he's not... Uh, uh, a countercultural figure. Exactly. Mm. And the book was first published in 1955, mm. but it doesn't come out in Britain till 59. And there's a huge scandal about it. I mean, it's not a pornographic book mm. in the sense of, uh, you know, there's not many things going up and down and mm. things being opened or, you know, all, all the sort of lurid details that we expect from pornography. Um, but it's a highly immoral book, obviously. And one of the things I trace in that first chapter is about the the reception of it as a literary piece of work, where it's it's acclaimed very quickly, and also the that theme of older men having sex with underage girls, which is there all the way through Nabokov's work. If you go back to the nineteen twenties, it's there because he's a literary genius, which I'm, I think he was. It's excused. It's a, you know, it's a motif. We get this running through the sixties, reemerging in a way, the sort of late sixties, early seventies, yeah. as part of the kind of the rock stars and the groupies, filmmakers, haven't you? Like the Roman Polanski, and, which, as you say now, in the very sensitive times that we live in, would be totally outrageous. And in fact, things have gone on with people who are still alive. You know, rock, the rock stars who are still alive, who you know, notably were with underage girls. That seems to have gone away with it. I mean, to some extent, and they could sort of say, well, it was of the time possibly it was of the time wasn't it mm. and there was another aspect of it which stuck out for me was that pornography itself and i'm saying this without any moral judgment either way but pornography itself becomes part of the countercultural movement towards freedom of expression yeah. doesn't it and people like jermaine greer you know the the, the arch, arch feminist uh, bless her are at the front of this as well as people like larry flint in america you know a sort of he's fighting his battle with uh, jerry forwell the christian right under the banner, kind of, in a way, of the counterculture and of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. That seems a bit odd these days, I think, somehow, no? Absolutely. By the late 60s, pornography is all about liberation. Mm. Um, it's about showing as much as you can, doing as much as you can, mm. and there is no sense of exploitation about it at all. There is very strongly a sense that if you disapprove of any kind of pornography, that you must be a square, you must be 
you know, hopelessly out of keeping with the times. Well, IT and Oz are full of semi-pornographic images, aren't yeah. they? Jermaine Greer herself appears in a sort of spread, literally a spread, hasn't she? <laughs> yeah, um, she wasn't very pleased about that. Yeah. Well, she wasn't very pleased about it, but she was involved in setting up that magazine Suck, wasn't yeah. she? You know, which took it even further, right? So, uh, and again, you know, no judgment. I think some of it is, even the mistakes are forgivable in some ways because I think that, you know, without risk, there is no reward. You know, it was the experimental times in genuine where for sure there's people who are taking advantage lots of men did there's people who are exploiting people again mainly men right but also there were people who were, were just trying stuff out right and sure. some of it yeah. t- turned out to be disastrous yeah. disastrous for kids disastrous for families disastrous for maybe women people personally right but it was a deeply sort of experimental time when it came to all this stuff even as i'm saying that i keep remembering your book is that you say yes it was for a small group of people yeah but most people they were kind of carrying on as they were in the 50s and 60s weren't they they, well, they yeah, maybe but, looked at the the mick yeah. jaggers you know what they were up to as these almost like these kind of gods they had the sort of license of the greek and roman gods to sort of live this orgiastic lifestyle but most people were just sort of looking on weren't they they weren't actually doing it themselves that that's true Again, as a personal thing, being 13 in 1970 and then coming across the counterculture, if only through the pages of the NME and interviews by John Lennon and Mick Jagger and so on, I had a a profound effect on on sort of broadening my mind. The last thing I want to do is sort of culturally indict the 1960s and stand alongside Margaret Thatcher and Norman Tebbit and say this was appalling. Uh, But appalling things did happen in the 60s. Mm. But they were almost always masterminded uh, with the accent on the master by people of Thatcher and Tebbit's generation. Right, interesting. Let's go back to music. And one of the very first guests on this programme a few years back was Jenny Fabian. Oh, right. And Jenny wrote the book Groupie, um, which you talk about. And I read it for the programme and stuff. And it's a very odd uh, book, actually. It's, I think Jenny would have made this herself. It's not a very good book, um, but it's fascinating. It's a fascinating picture of the time and of course, it is Spot the Musician because they're thinly disguised bands and musicians. Yeah. Of course, are famously Sid Barrett um, in there. In some ways, it is a feminist track because it's this young woman who's basically doing whatever she feels like, right? And it was a sort of significant book from that point of view, wasn't it? Even though the men in it, again, don't come out of it very well. No, and, and I was fascinated to see interviews with, I think it was 10 years after, and a couple of the guys from the band saying, oh, groupies, we really love, you know, getting them turned on and then just walking away and leaving them. The assumption being that they were, you know, nothing more than dirt. But then if you take the Jermaine Greer attitude to, to groupies, she proudly defined herself in print in Oz magazine as being a groupie. She she was the groupie academic, you know. In the book, the character, you know, she is like, I want that. She's at the UFO club and looking up at the stage and Davy, you know, Sid Barrett basically is yeah. there and she's like, I yeah. want, you know, and then she goes out to get it, right? And the same with Pamela DeBar mm-hmm. and so on in America. Girls yeah. together outrageously and the yeah. Zappa, you know. Uh, they, they, they were women who were in charge of their own bodies and oh, destinies, yeah, very, weren't very they? much so. And that, leaving aside, you know, whether you think... It was good for them in the long run, and only they can say that. Um, They had choice. They were exercising that choice, which was a choice that maybe people of their age 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, didn't have. Yeah, Yeah, right. And Jermaine Greer talks a lot about that. You know, she came to London, you know, from Oz as this 
Amazonian powerful woman who knew what she <laughs> yeah. wanted and was going to get yeah. it. The way she talks about English men is very funny. I, you almost I'm get terrified the, of her. Yeah, well, exactly. You get the sense of her, as you say, Amazonian striding through underground London and... <laughs> How would you describe it? Men's penis is shriveling as she, <laughs> as she appears because they've never seen a woman who's that open, that forthright, Powerful, that yeah. straightforward about what she wants <laughs> and how she's going to get it. What is quite interesting is that because of music, the Brits who had been seen as this sort of stuffy, you know, bowler hat wearing kind of uptight, no sex please with British types, start to become sexy uh, towards the end of the 60s. I mean, I guess because of the Beatles, who you've written yeah. a lot about, and yeah. because of the Stones, right? Well, yes. Yeah, so yeah. um, I, I always remember John Lennon talking about going to America in 64 with the Beatles. So they almost carried sex into the heart of the American mainstream with them in, in 64 in a way that, it, okay, it was there with Elvis 10 years before, right. but not to the same extent. So, so yes, in the 60s, Britain is briefly cool. When um, you see those films of you know, Shea Stadium or, you know, the, the Beatles concerts pretty much anywhere during the sort of first half of the 60s. And Beatlemania, the absolute hysteria of the audience, which is 95% with girls, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Well, possibly more with the Beatles, actually. Right. Yeah. It is a sort of sexual hysteria, isn't it? Often the, the girls are younger and it's expressed through, you know, screaming and crying and, you know, tearing their hair and stuff. But there is something going on which the older generation in the establishment found absolutely terrifying. And in a way, understandably so, right? Because yeah. we haven't seen this before unless it's on the battlefield. And, and the weird thing about the Beatles inspiring that is that they don't move on stage. Right. And occasionally George Harrison jogs his leg backwards and forwards or mm. something. Otherwise, they don't move. Now, you go back 10 years before that, Elvis is thrusting his, his um, pelvis into the, you know, the front row. Little Richard, yeah, ex transgressive, exactly. you know, deeply, <laughs> obviously yeah. sexual, right? Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. And I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I 100% believe it. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. That two-beat pattern. The fact is, America in the 1950s was ill-equipped to deal with the pagan worldview and sexuality that lurked beneath the surface of this new musical form initiation into the fires of pagan sexuality began. In an era where sex outside of marriage was almost universally viewed as wrong, even sinful, teenagers began to dance to the coded sensuality of Little Richard, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Rock and roll has got to go, and go it does. In a way, the forerunner for the Beatles, managing to behave quite tamely and yet inspiring sexual ecstasy, is Frank Sinatra, who again hmm. wasn't, you know, Frank wasn't thrusting his pelvis. He was standing up and holding his microphone and singing. But if you go back to Times Square and whichever theatre it was in 1942, 43, Frank Sinatra was producing exactly the same hysteria.
mm. in Young Girls as the Beatles did, yeah. You talk a bit in the book about our own Elvis. He's not really, was he? Yeah, Cliff Richard. <laughs> I Cliff. <laughs> it's descri- he's still alive, yeah, bless him. But described as such, wasn't it? And, you know, they, they sort of styled him a little bit like a kind of movie star. But mm. um, I think you say it's it looks more like a gay icon, actually. He hasn't got whatever it was that Elvis had. Maybe the threat. Is that right? I'm not a teenage girl from 1958, so mm. I don't know. But looking back now, he's got more of a boy next door appeal. Mm. One, of, one of the things I found fascinating, and one of the sort of late 50s, early 60s pop comics aimed at girls, a regular column by Cliff Richard talking about all the other hunks of the time and describing them the way that the girls would like to think that they were. It reads very strangely now to hear Cliff talking about, I don't know, Marty Wilde and Jess Conrad as being these gorgeous hunks that you're bound to love. As the 60s wind on, it starts to spread out from these kind of small centres of counterculture or the underground or whatever you want to call it, you know, these little pockets of sexual liberation. There is that kind of wonderful period, isn't there, where there's these films made about girls getting pregnant and in the north and you know there's the, mm-hmm. the place is it spring and port wine that play you know and um, it's obvious that she's pregnant and that's why she can't eat the herring and and stuff and it's the, <laughs> like these kitchen sink dramas and then it gets to alfie which you mm-hmm. talk about which is a terrific film but also at the same time it's a bit disturbing isn't it it, it is i mean i'd forgotten until i watched it i mean i'd seen it in the 70s mm. and then two or three times since but I've we're talking it, about the michael came one michael not came the one that was not was yeah, yeah. Not, not the remake with no. Law. um it is disturbing it's deeply sad and not only are young women in the film being taken advantage of um, sometimes they want it as the character in the fast show would say but um, often they're being persuaded against their better judgment but also michael Caine ends up at the end uh, in the film completely demoralized completely sad absolutely sickened by what he's done which which has basically caused one of his lovers to have an abortion Mm. and he's got to actually face up to the reality of it and it's strange that so many of the iconic 60s films that we think of in terms of sex um, are actually about sexual dysfunction or or sexual unhappiness. Um, I mean, I can remember <laughs> uh, being very interested by watching Blow Up, for example, whenever it was first shown on TV, early 70s, because it was just about the most shocking thing I'd ever seen at that point. The key thing about that is there is sex in the film. There's plenty of nudity in the film, female nudity. The main figure, the, the, the character played by David Hemmings, is actually not that interested. He's prepared to play along for five seconds and then it's, I've had enough of that, get out. Um, so there's that sort of coldness about sex in the 60s on screen, which it sort of goes against what we think of as being the ethos of that time. But before we um, leave the 60s, and in contrast to that coldness, it seems quite important, given the fact that she died yesterday, to talk about Jane Birkin. Jane Birkin yeah. And I've self-confessed massive fan of Jane Birkin yeah. I met Jane a couple of times once in Paris and Gansberg is a huge uh, influence mm-hmm. for me too and of course Gansberg had been you know going since the late 50s in France completely unknown here and then then they burst literally erupt onto the British pop scene with uh, Je t'aime one en plus which you know it gets banned and, it's, and it is an overtly sexual in a very strange almost like cartoon <laughs> sort of way yeah. brilliant 
tune. Oh, it's uh, it's an old tune, but it's an older tune of Gansbrook's, actually. It's mm. from a film. I think it's Le, from Le, Le Couvert, but it's uh, which is a sort of slow instrumental, but he repurposed it for Jane, and I think Bridget Bardot originally, but then, That's right. yeah. and then for Jane. And then they, they, have this, they have this global hit with it, actually. But, of course, it never gets played on the radio, does it? No, I mean, you've got very strong memory. English grammar school music lessons. No pop. But one day a year, in my school anyway, boys were allowed to bring in records. And that was how I first heard Abbey Road, for example. It must have been the end of school term, Christmas 69. Another boy brought in Je T'aime, and so it was put on. And after about 30 seconds, the teacher went, what the bloody hell? <laughs> Ripped it off the turntable, and that was the end. You know, no more records from boys. <laughs> yes. Even these days, and I'm, as a Gansburg fan, it, it's comes on sometimes it's, you kind of cross your legs and wince a bit <laughs> well um, yeah I love Jane Birkin as well of course mm. um, but she does sound as if she's in a coma most of the way through the record it's a very it, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the most realistic guide to what sex might be like no that's true actually and, and of course I think it's a better translation is it's probably loins, but the, the, the French word, I can't remember what it is now, but it, we sort of translate it as kidneys. So, so between your kidneys, always sounded like a very strange biological... Sound, sounds sexier in French. French so. yeah. But of course, you know, that was 69, of course. And let's not forget their classic L'année érotique 69. Um, you know, and they came and lived in Chelsea for a while and uh, were part of that whole set, weren't they? It's an image for me which, of the 60s, which is which I sort of treasure, which this incredibly sexy, sophisticated couple walking through the, these city streets. But the 70s come around and in a way, I think this sort of sexual revolution does start to take hold more in the wider culture, doesn't it? And you talk about this contraceptions, you know, generally more acceptable isn't it even, yeah, even amongst even yeah. amongst catholics yeah. right you know even amongst some of some of the religious ministers and stuff yeah. and, and you've also got again I, i'm not using me and my age as the sort of be all or end all of you know, mankind's experience but uh, when i went to university at 18 that was 1975 we at that age you know, regardless of what we did individually, did we had inhaled the spirit of what had been going on from the counterculture onwards. Whether or not we'd actually seen any of the films, or, you know, we didn't have to listen to Frank Zappa to pick up on the general ambience, the atmosphere of the underground. And I think that did affect everybody's behaviour. Didn't mean that everybody had wild sex all the time. We certainly didn't, sadly. It was there. It was part of one's mindset in a way which it wouldn't have been if I'd gone to university in 1965. Assuming that you, if you chose to, you could live with your boyfriend or girlfriend yeah. without many raised eyebrows, right? Yeah. So marriage, you know, was sort of starting to kind of disappear as a sort of de facto consequence if you're with somebody, right? Interesting thinking back. I can't, I mean, I mean it just shows how naive I was at 18. I cannot remember consciously knowing any gay men. Now, there were gay women because there were um, extremely obvious radical um, lesbian feminists, and God bless them, thank goodness. Uh, and they, I mean, for someone like me to just even come across a, a gay woman was just, you know, it, it was mind blowing. And I, it took me by surprise because there was nothing in my background to prepare me for that modern thinking about sex and about society and so it's, on. Yeah, it's quite interesting you say that gay men were still quite invisible. Yeah, I mean, um, there must have been, I mean, obviously I must, I must have been fantastically blind or I wasn't looking for it. If there were gay men, there was no flamboyance about the way they're acted and there must have been 
a large number, you know, 3,000 students or whatever. There must have been a gay liberation society or something, but I don't remember it. Well, Gay uh, Times was part, like, came yeah, out of the, the, like, early, came out of the, the, um, the independent press, yeah. didn't it? Move? I'm assuming it probably was more, still more, much more difficult to, you know, f- to be out and gay, yeah. maybe in certain, certain parts of the country in particular. I mean, uh, like. yeah. One thing we haven't talked about, you know, which is an important part of it, I guess, because it comes up in groupie quite a lot, is... Is venereal disease, right? So with the actual, with all the freedoms and, you know, that contraception might bring, um, it also brought along these kind of rather nasty sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah, well, you don't have to go to the 70s, you can go to the late 50s. Right. There was a national panic around 1958, 59, 60 about the numbers of venereal disease cases which are going completely through the roof. Because ages. people are having more sex or they're having people more sex with more people? Or? Yeah, I think both both of those are mm. true. And also it's being talked about probably. I mean, okay. it was a subject that for the first time could be discussed Mm. On the front page of a Daily Mirror or a Daily Herald or, you know, all the sort of popular newspapers. I can remember in my research finding, I think it was the Daily Herald had like a week-long investigation into VD. Now, they always blame young people because obviously nobody over the age of 16 was ever going to get VD. So it was always <laughs> young people's fault. But, and probably girls' fault. Oh, that's right. It was a huge health scare and yeah. they, they would print graphs showing that if, if the cases carried on increasing at this rate, by 1970, everybody in the country would have VD. I think it's time for a musical break. VD is for everybody, not just for curious or confused, get information or a pamphlet at most pharmacies or a health clinic. If you need help, see a doctor. And now, and now what I'd love to know is how much of that horror was health, genuine. Or moral disapprobation. Moral, exactly, yeah. Obviously that's going on, but because what's going to happen next in the 80s is, is the advent of AIDS and mm. HIV, right? When unprotected sex actually can kill you. Yeah. I suppose in some ways in the 70s, there was this time was there where contraception and sex won't kill you. So this window of kind of libidinous <laughs> emancipation. I'm saying nothing. I, don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think so. I mean, there's always the worry about contraceptive failure. Right. But it's obviously not as um, overwhelming as it mm. is in all those films you were talking about earlier mm. in the 50s and 60s, the kitchen sink stuff where you can guarantee if a young woman in those films has sex once, she gets pregnant right. every time. Right. But it was still there. But yeah, in retrospect, I think that sort of age, comparative freedom, did pretty much have the curtains pulled on it by the mm. early 80s, yeah. You talk about something else, which is the connection with fashion. Yeah. Tell us about the miniskirt. <laughs> The other thing is the, the topless swimsuit, the topless dress. I mean, in, in a way, the miniskirt is the polite, acceptable right. version of the topless dress. Now, who designed topless dresses? Well, almost always men, of course. In the summer of 1964, there was a, a, a worldwide craze suddenly for the idea that women, it had to be the right kind of women, 
according to Mary Quant, it had to be women quite skinny with small breasts. They were being encouraged to wear topless fashion. And one or two brave souls did risk the chilly air of London and (laughs) get on the tube or get on the bus and usually Mm. get arrested for doing it. And and the topless swimsuit comes along at the same time. Mm. And it's like a season's outrage. It's everywhere. It's everywhere in the media. And there's stories from all over the world about topless swimsuits and topless dresses. There's even a scandal about, I can't remember which country it is, it was Australia. People queue up to buy the topless male swimsuit and then realise, hang on a minute, (laughs) almost all men are wearing topless (laughs) swimsuits anyway. So what's this all about? Um, And I think somebody else sold the topless and bottomless swimsuit, which was an empty box. So... (laughs) That sounds yeah. very countercultural. <laughs> yeah. But then the miniskirt was what mm. you asked about. And that does become the fashion icon of mm. 66. And nothing says youth, freedom, liberation like showing most of your body off. Um, it was a fashion that suited a lot of young women, but not all. It became a sort of lascivious thing for men. Poor, I love her in a miniskirt. With the kinky boots. With the kinky boots. Uh, and. It became a sufficient sort of social worry for Oxbridge colleges to ban girls from wearing um, miniskirts when they were taking their exams mm. because the frail male students wouldn't be able to cope with, with the expanse of mm. bare leg. Women would be, be thrown off the production line in factories for exactly the same reason. You know, productivity levels are going <laughs> down because all the men are staring at this woman's thighs. One thing which has come up on this show more recently, because I mean, I'm basically educating myself in all this stuff, right? So, you know, I, I think I probably did start off with a kind of, um, you know, maybe a bit more technical psychedelic vision of it all. One thing I'm quite keen to do is to do a program about the dark side of the beats. You know, I mean, I love the beats, but it's been apparent that, you know, they did some very, very dodgy stuff. William Burroughs and Paul Bowles in Morocco behaved appallingly. Kerouac behaved pretty badly. You know, it's an important part of the story. You know, yeah. I mean, all you got to do is read Charles Bukowski. I'm a fan of Bukowski, but it's at the same time, it's deeply misogynistic, you know, at mm. times. I mean, I, I love Norman Mailer, who's right. not, not a beat. You have to remember, he stabbed his wife. <laughs> Burroughs shot his wife. Yeah. Sort of seems to get not literally lauded for it, but it's also good old Bill. You know, I'm very fond of Ginsburg. He just seemed to me like a rather wonderful, generous person. But, you know, some people think that he was pretty dodgy at times as well. And, uh, well, and he had associations with this organisation, trying to legalise paedophilia and Man Nambler. Boy. Man and Boy lo- Love Association. Association or whatever. Again, it's really difficult because, no, it's completely unacceptable. At the time, were they just naive? Were they predators? Or was it people were trying to find out i just don't know and i can clearly remember reading my guardian in 1970 something late 70s early 80s and thinking for fuck's sake oh we're now one step away from legally it's going to be okay to have sex with children because the national council for civil liberties were mm. sort of backing this yeah they, they information backed, exchange right the, yeah yeah. Ex- yeah right in the name of counterculture yeah. you know and like some of the songs, which are still played, you know, on mainstream American radio, but I think if people listen to the lyrics a bit more closely, they'd be like, what? What's that album cover? It's Blind Faith album cover. It's yeah. pornography. Yeah. But, it, but it's a million selling. You know, and I, record, I, heard a, right? I heard a Lou Reed song the other day. It sounds like he's talking about, you know, waking up next to a, a very young girl, you know, and sort of, mm. how did that sneak past? Again, you know, it's, I've been trying to puzzle out for myself, you know, without risk, there's no reward. And that's mm. the sort of truism 
and you know people need to experiment make mistakes maybe you just shouldn't experiment on other people maybe that's well, the message experiment on yourself the philosophical question is whose risk Who's, who's reward? Who's risk and who's yeah. reward? Yeah. Whether the people, guys from the Pedophile Information Exchange, published, and they're writing quite detailed theses about why this is good mm. for children. Mm. Now, whether they seriously believe assist, that, yeah, or it's at post hoc rationalisation. Yeah, exactly. We did an event recently about Joe Orton. Same thing, you know. I mean, I'm a fan of Joe Orton, but Jesus, you know, the diaries. It's written about in a kind of matter of fact way. If there's any reticence about it, it's just about the fact that it's homosexual activity, not rather than it's homosexual activity with a minor. And actually, they're doing them a favour because they would probably buy, buy, yeah, give them money or buy them supper or give them presents or something, Mm. which would give them a higher status than their. Peter, we've come to the end, and it's a vast subject, brilliant book, very thought provoking, and uh, shows both sides of the story told through 12 stories has to be said as well 12 different stories which kind of illuminate it from different angles we live in strange times don't we moralistically speaking i mean some of the tropes that you talk about they're still here aren't they in a way just this last week uh, a famous well-beloved news presenter has been sort of castigated for i'm not even quite sure what he did or didn't do but something to do with photographs and 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 a young person nothing illegal nothing to look at say the police and who does it He's been castigated by the sun. The sun, yeah. The scum, as we call it, uh, in my, <laughs> my house. The newspaper that I read it recently, back in the 80s, with Samantha Fox, who was one of their favourite models, was counting down the days until she was 16. I've got a feeling that at least one British national newspaper, that was Charlotte Church, I was remembering right. earlier as well, yeah. which must have been the 90s, I right. guess. So exactly the same thing. Gleefully um, sort of waiting until she was just legal, ba- yeah. barely legal, in to fact. To show the right. photographs. Photographs that they'd already taken. But one of the bizarre things, when the story about the newsreader mm. came up, oh, what a bizarre society we live in, where you can get mm. married when you're 16, but if you look at a photograph of a naked person between the ages of 16 and 18, that's effectively child pornography. So you can marry a, uh, a man or woman of 16, 17, but if you take a photograph, that's porn. I mean, you just go, how does that make sense? I mean, I can see that the legislation is there to protect children, and thank God. But it's one of the millions of contradictions of mm. culture which has never quite been been sorted yeah, out. Yeah, and at the same time, and again, I mean, I, anyway, I'm not dropping this in as a moral uh, statement in any way at all, but, you know, within my memory, soft pornography was available on the top shelves of newsagents, obtained, oh, obtained with quite a lot of shame, embarrassment, and, you know, reaching up to get it, yeah, yeah. and age checks and stuff. Suddenly... It's everywhere. <laughs> the yeah. click of a mouse, you've got access to the entire world of it, right? Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? We live in these very confused times. Well, I and yeah. I, mean, I, I start to worry in my old age that I'm starting to sound more and more like sort of um, <laughs> Old Testament prophet going, whoa, whoa, it's me. <laughs> but, but the sexual I, revolution has played out in multiple yeah, contradictory ways. I, I have a feeling in 50 years' time that people are going to be looking back and going, what, how was it possible for that test pit to be opened because it's got nothing to do with sexual liberation. It's all about exploitation. Right. The violence against women, particularly, mm. you know, the cases of young women experiencing strangulation in sort mm. of, there's all these, use your word, tropes, which are becoming main, part of mainstream young people's culture because they're being exposed to porn at an age That's when they're not psychologically able to 
understand it. And sometimes justified on the basis that this is an extension of the sexual revolution. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I must it's confess a, I'm confused about the whole thing. I don't, yeah, I don't know too. really what to think, but it'd be interesting to know in a way that we look back at some of the things that went on in the 60s, which you yeah. point out. <laughs> I know. And think, yeah. oh my God, yeah. how did they do that? Why did they do that? And how did they do that? Whether in 50 years' time, whether um, the next generation will be looking back and sort of slapping their foreheads and saying, what on earth were they thinking, you know? Maybe in my 110s, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be here to write the book. I hope so. Growing up in the, whatever it is, 2020s. Uh, Peter, thanks for the book, all the ideas and uh, thoughts that it provoked in me. And thanks for coming to the Bureau of Culture to talk about it. Thank you. And I'd be happy to come back if required. You will be required. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. Yes, thanks to Peter. That was thought-provoking. What do you think? I mean, I was thinking that we all have our own personal sexual revolutions in a way, don't we? Just waking up to that side of life is a revolution in itself. Sometimes gentle and joyful, sometimes weird and wonderful, freakish or fun, sometimes brutal and bloody. Quite often, a bit silly. I remember uh, reading about the writer Kingsley Amis describing his libido as being chained to an ape. Even though I wasn't around for the Summers of Love, uh, and I grew up in a very Catholic household, uh, I remember when I was a kid, there was a bust of the Pope on top of the TV in our house, which was excruciating every time an even slightly saucy scene came on. My folks, uh, bless them, obviously found the idea of sex education terrifying. Uh, when I was little, one day, whilst looking for something to read, I came across a book in the bookshelves. It was called uh, Sex and Your Children. <laughs> that, that title didn't age well. Uh, it was a sort of Catholic primer on the facts of life. I mean, naturally, I uh, opened it, uh, zipped past all the sort of spiritual stuff at the beginning and skipped to chapter three, where the action began. I can't remember that much about it, but I know there were some very odd, slightly disturbing diagrams, and then a description of the moment of consummation, post-wedding, obviously, which said something like, in the depths of the man's devotion to the Holy Spirit and his love for his wife, his penis enters her vagina. And I remember at the time I had this sort of vision of my father's penis kind of detaching itself as though it was just held on by Velcro and sort of pogoing across the bed like a bike pump ready for action. Anyway, you probably didn't want to hear all that. I think I'll shut up now. I mean, I'm not messed up, honestly. Actually, I've said it a thousand times. Don't need to say it again. Come and join us. Leave us a review. Write us a letter. BureauofLostCulture.com Thanks to Adrian and everybody at Soho Radio. And thank you to you for joining us. We mentioned uh, Jane Birkin, who sadly died this week, and Serge Gansberg, and their global hit, Je t'aime, moi en plus. Well, Gansberg was, as I said, a major influence on me, and Jane was a hero of mine. Uh, we made a song called La Bête et la Belle with David Gares back in the day, which was because of them, really. Uh, I met Jane a couple of times, once in Paris when we played a session at France Inter where she was also on the show. We played her that song, La Bête La Belle, and also Gansborg's La Javanaise, sung in English, which was a bit cheeky considering, uh, but she was very sweet about it and kissed me on the cheek. 
I treasured that kiss. I didn't wash for a week. So, R.I.P. Jane. We loved you. So here to finish is Labette Elavelle. Je 